team worked really well in, in really stressful circumstances. This was the first patient in the hospital known to be COVID positive. So not only um, was it the first patient, but it was straight to an air, a difficult airway. So a real test of our, of our teamwork. When we started, there was a steep learning curve. And certainly what we've found is that having a consistent team to deal with these patients is very important. Welcome to BLA Connections, a clear voice. This podcast is brought to you by the British Laryngological Association, the BLA. I'm your host, Natalie Watson. It gives me great pleasure to bring to you the experts within the field to discuss the pressing topics of the day. With each episode, we will be inviting an expert to share their views, experiences and guidance to discuss and explore specific topics, breaking research and updated guidelines, cutting through the noise and providing a clear voice. This episode focuses on the recent paper entitled Practical Insights for Pediatric Otolaryngology, Surgical Cases and Performing Microlaryngo Bronchoscopy During the COVID-19 Pandemic, written by the world-class pediatric ENT team at Great Ormond Street Hospital in London. Here, representing the team are two of the authors, Miss Michelle Wyatt, pediatric ENT consultant with particular interests in airway reconstruction and craniofacial abnormalities, and past BAPO representative of, on the BLA Council, and Miss Claire Fraunfelder, one of the current Paediatric ENT Fellows at GOSH over in the UK from Adelaide, Australia. Welcome and thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So before going into the nitty gritty of the paper, generally what's been your experience at GOSH with children suffering with COVID-19? Well, I think we in paediatrics have always said that children are different. And certainly this coronavirus pandemic has illustrated that yet again. Compared to adults, we're seeing much less disease in children with only four to 500 paediatric admissions with COVID-19 across the United Kingdom. And in total, there have been recorded to date 11 deaths in children compared to around 40,000 in adults. We find that children are half as likely to get COVID-19 as adults, and they're certainly not as ill with it. And this data has come from contact tracing. And it also seems that children are much less likely to transmit the virus compared to something like influenza when they are major transmitters. We've also seen that asymptomatic children will transmit less virus than symptomatic ones. But then also we do know that some children have a very high viral load and this has caused incredible concerns. And certainly it did to us initially when we started out in the middle of March. So there's so much that we know now that we didn't know at the start. And what we really want to talk about through this podcast is how perhaps approaches have changed and how we need to look forward to the future to make sure that today's generation of children are not disadvantaged by this pandemic. Great. Well, thank you very much. Having read your excellent paper, there are three clear sections, general preoperative preparation, performing an MLB, and thirdly, highlighting modifications for other procedures. So let's firstly talk about how your team at GOSH prepares for a procedure. Well. As I said, when we started back in March, like everybody else, we were very concerned about this virus, who was at risk, were we going to get ill from it ourselves, what was going to happen. And certainly when we wrote that paper, we were very aware of the fact that microlaryngobronchoscopy is an aerosol generating procedure. And as such, we needed to take every precaution to protect ourselves from possible infection, but also to protect the patients. So we wrote the paper talking about full PPE. For us, that was an FFP3 mask with eye protection 
in the form of a visor, a full-length waterproof gown, and appropriate gloving. And we were very careful to make sure that all members of the team knew the appropriate doffing and donning techniques. When we started, there was a steep learning curve. And certainly what we've found is that having a consistent team to deal with these patients is very important. When you wear any sort of PPE, and particularly if you have to wear a PFR hood, communication in the operating theatre is very difficult. And one of the first things we found out is that any background noise, any unnecessary chatter was really detrimental to patient care. On top of that, there were the obvious difficulties with vision, wearing a visor, and obviously the heat that was generated from wearing all this equipment. So as in our paper, and Claire will be able to give you a little bit more details of what we actually recommended, and then maybe we can talk a little bit more about what we're actually doing now on a more practical basis, including the preoperative testing that's been brought in by NHS England to test children before we will go ahead with intervention. I think when initially we didn't have access to as much testing as we do now. And certainly there was a rapid test available, which could turn around a result overnight. But now we have a test that can turn around a result in four hours for emergency cases. For elective cases now, the general plan is to screen patients 24 to 72 hours before they're admitted. That then gives a little bit of reassurance to the members of the operating theatre team as to the COVID status of the patient. The general recommendation now for elective surgery is that a child should isolate for 14 days before coming into the hospital, which again gives a level of reassurance to the operating theatre team. Having said that, our recommendation for an FFP3 mask, visor or safety glasses, a full-length waterproof gown and gloves still exists. Um, I think the most important thing we're doing at the moment is we're transitioning from really only doing emergency work. Having said that, for us, we had to look after over 200 different patients in the previous three months. So we've had quite a high load of emergency work. As we move forward, we're really needing to address all the patients who have been delayed and, and all of the patients who've continued to be referred to us in that time who may not have been super urgent but still need to be assessed and, and treated. So we are trying to now um, upskill our team, improve our processes and, and really use PPE on a routine basis so that we can get through the, the backlog of work that I'm sure every other unit around the world is, is uh, looking at at the moment and making their plans as to how they're going to treat patients. I mean, yes, as Claire said, we have treated over 200 cases in the past three months. In the first few weeks, these were mainly urgent airway interventions or head and neck or otological sepsis. We had a handful of tracheostomies that we undertook. As we moved on through into April, some urgent tumor resections needed to be done. And now as we've moved into May and early June, we are starting to do some open airway work, particularly open laryngeal cleft repair. Two or three cases have come through in the last few weeks. And also, again, of interest to all hospitals around the United Kingdom, is the need to treat these children with significant obstructive sleep apnea. While initially it was very reasonable to say interventions not required, these children now have been waiting over three months. And you know, looking at the benefits versus risk, we strongly feel here that their upper airway obstruction needs to be treated. And we certainly are moving through those cases as well. One of the other benefits is that our theatre teams are now all, all very well trained. 
using PPE on a routine basis. So we're starting to to get some speed up. We're communicating well within the theatre, within the limitations of PPE, but really starting to be able to repopulate our operating lists because our team is working well. There's one thing that GOSH does very well is teamwork. So can you tell us about your experience in performing an MLB on a patient with COVID-19, maybe at the beginning and now comparing it to now? Uh, Certainly. So uh, very early on, uh, within the first few days of lockdown here in London, we were presented with an ex-premature baby, known difficult uh, difficulty being intubated um, when they were born, who had been subsequently well enough to go home, but presented in acute respiratory distress, was unable to be intubated locally and transferred to us ventilated via an LMA but needing uh, needing intubation but were known to be COVID positive. Our team worked really well in, in really stressful circumstances. This was the first patient in the hospital known to be COVID positive. So not only um, was it the first patient but it was straight to an air, a difficult airway. So a real test of our, of our teamwork. We used the PPE that we've described um, and that we've we've stuck with throughout the pandemic, um, and that kept everybody safe. Um, we managed to intubate the baby during an MLB with an age-appropriate tube uh, over a Hopkins rod um, and able to advance that into the airway. We saw lots of secretions and lots of glottic swelling present, um, and the baby went on to have quite a rocky course. Initially, um, was quite stable uh, and intubated, but subsequently developed ARDS um, in, a, in a fashion that was quite similar to several unwell adult patients. That particular child's experience was quite different to other babies who've been well with, uh, unwell with COVID, thankfully, and we haven't seen many other children following a similar pattern. So we started with, a, with the most difficult, um, but what that did mean was uh, that we were able to spend time as a team and, and get everybody upskilled, streamline our processes, and, and that's why we thought the paper would help other teams needing to do that. But now we're in a different phase and really trying to move on to streamlined elective work and and looking after other kids now that we're aware that the kid that we treated wasn't the the norm within the COVID pandemic. One thing that we've found quite useful, anyone who's had experience um, with paediatric MLB will know that um, our standard technique has been to pass a nasopharyngeal airway and maintain the child on that as they move from the anaesthetic room into the operating theatre. There's a huge amount of leak in what is technically an open circuit there. So one of the things that we found helpful early on, and we now still do use, is we can bring the child from the anaesthetic room into the operating theatre on a face mask. Actually, we find that preferable to using a laryngeal mask airway, which was another suggestion that was made initially. There's actually quite a considerable amount of leak around even a well-fitted laryngeal mask airway. We've done quite a bit of work demonstrating this. So one of the techniques we find quite useful, particularly if their child will be COVID positive, is to bring them in from the anaesthetic room to the operating theatre on a face mask. So talking about modifications, what modifications or tips would you recommend for other paediatric ENT procedures during the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, I think, again, when we started with this, like everyone, we were trying to think of all different sorts of ways of shielding any aerosol that might be generated from the patient from spreading around the operating theatre and all sorts of suggestions. And we use them about putting plastic drapes over the end of laryngoscopes or a big plastic shield up around the patient. 
But what we tended to find that by doing these things was it actually hindered the surgeon's ability and the nurses and the other theatre staff to actually carry out their job. And it made the procedure take much longer. And actually, we felt probably put everyone at more risk because you were less dexterous in your surgical skills. The nurses were unfamiliar with what we were doing. The anaesthetists also were concerned. And we tended to move away from excessive draping or protecting. And also with preoperative testing, we're now in a, in a slightly more comfortable environment than we were when we started. In terms of our briefing as well, um, we make sure that the team is, is aware of what our, our plan is and what the backup plan would be by working with an experienced team uh, who know what to expect as we're operating. Um, we're able to get through the cases um, and get the patient in asleep, perform the procedure and finish up as quickly as we can in, in the safest fashion and allowing us to get through, through more patients. I mean, particularly, uh, though, a couple of things that perhaps might be interesting to share. If we're doing a removal of foreign body, we would bring the child from the anaesthetic room into the operating theatre on a face mask, and then we would move towards placing the bronchoscope to try and keep the circuit as closed as possible with a minimum leak of any aerosol that might be generated. And we find that that's quite helpful. We've also, with regards to tracheostomy, a couple of adaptations to make that hopefully as, as, as low as aerosol generating procedure as it possibly can be. We would use a cuff tube and make sure that when we make the incision into the trachea, that the incision is above where the cuff is sitting. So the cuff is protecting the surgeon from any aerosol that may be generated. We also would ask the anaesthetist to stop ventilating when we place the tracheostomy tube, which we also feel would reduce the aerosol generation. And one thing we did initially was that if we knew the child was COVID positive having a tracheostomy, we would delay the first tube change to around 10 days when the viral load in the child was lower. While we've said that for airway procedures, we've tended not to use any form of specific plastic sheet draping, certainly that's something which has been well described for otological surgery and a number of different techniques have been described and I think have merit. We are very happy to move forward to drain head and neck abscesses if required. We certainly don't feel there's any particular concerns regarding that, obviously, provided that everyone's in the appropriate PPE. Um, we wouldn't want to delay treating those children anymore. Initial discussions were about prolonged treatment with antibiotics, but we now feel it's better for the child to move on and drain any abscess collection if it's present. Um, and that certainly seems to have been effective with our cohort of patients that we've seen here. So again, I think to summarise, initial concerns were very real. We took great care to try and protect everyone in the operating theatre environment as much as possible. But as things have moved on, I think we need to move forward into a, a practical way of treating patients so that we can deliver service to the children. Interestingly, we've also run a study where we've screened asymptomatic children presenting at Great Ormond Street Hospital over the past three months and found an instance of one in 400 of them to be positive for coronavirus. So did everyone who came in through the doors get a COVID-19 swab? Not everybody, but we screened. How many yeah. children did we screen? So, so asymptomatic children um, undergoing any operative procedures and also um, asymptomatic children were screened as well. 
So there's been a lot of discussion about pinned TS in recent times, particularly on all the um, internet mums forums, certainly something that I'm a part of. And uh, we just wanted to know uh, a little bit more about your experience of PIMS TS at GOSH. Um, thank you. Well, PIMS TS uh, is an abbreviation for Pediatric Inflammatory Multisystem Syndrome, temporarily associated with COVID-19 infection. And what this basically is, is a hyperinflammatory state, which is seen in children who've had exposure to COVID-19. It's been described as similar to Kawasaki syndrome, which we're more familiar with, but there are quite a few differences which have become more apparent again over time. It's characterized by children having a persistent fever and signs of inflammation with either single or multi-organ dysfunction. And interestingly, PCR to COVID-19 can actually be positive or negative according to the Royal College of Pediatricians diagnosis. We've seen around 58 children at the hospital with this condition who have presented in a variety of ways, some of them being incredibly poorly, requiring intensive care support with ventilation and even ECMO. And interestingly, we found that 70% of this cohort are from a black, Asian and minority ethnic background. We, we're helping support the care of these children by looking into the ENT manifestations um, of, of this condition and also any other children who've had a COVID infection. Um, we're currently looking at anosmia um, as well as some voice change and ongoing voice issues that some of these children have, uh, as well as the possibility that either single or multicranial neuropathies can result um, from these infections. So I wonder if you've seen any patterns of dysphonia and dysphagia or anything else you'd like to mention about from ENT manifestations post-COVID-19, either intubated or non-intubated? So we're following up a, a group of the patients we've treated directly um, and we'll be reassessing their airways in due course. We have noted that uh, there have been quite a few dysphonic children um, who, who are starting to be referred to us now and several that have appeared to have developed uh, villopharyngeal incompetence. So we're working alongside our infectious diseases colleagues to help screen these children along with our speech and language therapists to ensure that quality of life for these kids who've been through quite a, a scary and significant medical event are fully able to access the services we have. We're also having a look into um, the issue of anosmia um, and potentially screening children, particularly as they, as they go back to school and whether there's a role for that, and involved in, in the multidisciplinary follow-up of the children with PIMS-TS uh, uh, along with many other groups within the hospital. The PIMS-TS group are particularly interesting because they do seem to have uh, an incidence of laryngeal issues, dysphagia, dysphonia which are not simply explained by either the disease itself or the need for intubation, but perhaps a neurological sequelae of COVID-19 infection leading to PIMS-TS, which then affects the coordination of the various muscles in the larynx and pharynx. And that's something that we need to look at in the long term. Finally, what main points would you like our listeners to take home today? We are very keen that medical care for children gets back to a near as normal level as possible because we have seen increasing examples of children who've been told to stay at home with respiratory symptoms or ENT type symptoms because of concerns that they may well be related to coronavirus infection 
And actually, they've suffered for, from this. For example, we've had children with button battery ingestions who have got significant injuries to their trachea and esophagus from this because their presentation at local hospitals has been delayed. And we're very keen that we get back to providing a normal standard of care for children. Absolutely. I totally agree. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences managing children with COVID-19 and those needing operations during the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you for writing the paper and everything you do for all the children uh, all across the UK and the, the world. So thank you. Thank you very much for the invite to talk. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another edition of our podcast. I've been your host, Natalie Watson, and this has been BLA Connections, a clear voice. Please feel free to email any topics and questions you would like us to explore, along with any suggested experts you would like to hear from, to inquiries at britishlaryngological.org. Please do subscribe to BLA Connections from the podcast platform of your choice, and we would love it if you could rate this episode. Thank you for listening and we hope you found our podcast informative.